Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. You got to say good morning a lot around here, don't you? It is a good morning, though. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, my name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you are just joining us, we are studying the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are books of the Bible that tell the story of the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylonian and Persian captivity to rebuild their worshiping community and city. It is a fascinating story that is going to get pretty intense. We will see some hints at that intensity in future conflict today in our text. But here's what I want us to see. This is where we're going. We're looking at only six verses today, chapter 3, 1 through 6. Here's the main thought. When you look around at your city and everything in it is in shambles and the work of rebuilding seems almost insurmountable, where do you start? What comes first? What we learn from the Israelites today is that the right worship of God comes first. They did not build a community center. They didn't build a mission outreach center. They didn't build a place to feed the poor. They didn't do any of those things. They built an altar to worship God. What this shows us is the right worship of God is primary. It's what comes before anything and everything else. And the same should be said of us today. If we want to see renewal happen in our cities, we must start with the right worship of God. And that only happens when you put one message at the center of all things. And we're going to see today that it's a pretty violent, grimy, gross message. So let me pray for us and we can jump into our text and uh, see what the Lord would have to say to us today. Father, first off, we want just to right away acknowledge that we need sustenance, inspiration, wisdom, light, truth from outside of ourselves. We don't have what it takes. We don't know what the world is like. We don't know what's wrong with us. We don't know what's wrong with the world. We don't know what, what will fix the world. Only you do. And so we humble ourselves under your word and we thank you for giving us this divine revelation. We thank you for your word that can straighten out what's crooked in us. And we ask that you would do that today. I ask that you would think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. It would be all of you and none of me, Father. I pray, as you say in your word, that your people would hear your voice and they would respond to it. What does that mean? They would be convicted of their sin. They would be humbled out of their pride. They would be instructed out of their foolishness. Father, that you would show us the way that we should go. Would you do this for your glory and our great joy this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles, Ezra chapter 3, but while you're doing that, let me catch us up to speed really quick. We saw in chapter 1 that God was moving the kingdoms of men to get his people where he wanted them. 
The Spirit stirred the heart of a pagan king to send his captive people back to their homelands in order to worship him rightly and rebuild the temple. Then the Spirit of God stirred the heart of faithful men, these heads of households, these patriarchal pioneers, to go back and do the hard work of being the first ones to show up on the scene. Then in chapter 2, we saw that the returning group of people was about 50,000 strong. They packed up everything. Everything they owned, they put on the back of donkeys and camels and headed back on that four-month-long journey with their families in tow. That took a ton of faith and courage. The cowards stayed home. The The courageous went back and did it. Then, when they arrived in Jerusalem, and they pulled up to the site of Solomon's temple, it was nothing but rubble. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it and had totally burned it up. Many of these folks had never seen the temple before. They were born and raised in Babylon. They had only heard stories about its former glory. Their parents used to tell how beautiful it was. And now here they are looking at a pile of soot-covered stones. And what do they do? It's interesting to me. You don't hear anything about weeping, about discouragement. Oh, it's worse than I thought. You don't hear any despair in chapter 2. In fact, the first thing that the people do when they get to the ruins of the temple, and you can tell this is how you know a preacher was leading them. The first thing they do when they show up is they take an offering. First thing, what do we do? Take an offering. Let's, I don't know. Let's just take an offering. When in doubt, take an offering, right? I put those figures into Google last week, and it was something like $11 million in today's currency. These people show up, they see everything's in shambles, and they take a very you know, radical, sacrificial offering to see the temple rebuilt, even though many of them would never see its completion. They'll die before they see its completion. They were willing to sacrifice in the present for their kids and their grandkids' future. The next thing they did, we didn't really talk about this last week, but it was in the end of chapter two, was they settle into their towns, right? Think about that. They lived in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem and the suburbs, okay? They had to find adequate housing in and around the city for 50,000 people. It's a lot of folks. More than likely, you know, they, were, they became the majority then moving into the town. Now, that's how the second chapter ended. Here's how the third chapter begins. When the seventh month came. Now it's interesting. In this first six verses, it says, talks about the seventh month twice. And it talks about also the feast of booths. Now if you're just reading this, you're probably more likely going to think when the seventh month, oh, it's seven months later. Seven months later, right? That's not what's actually going on right now. Okay, what's happening is this is happening. They moved back to Jerusalem in the seventh month of the Hebrew liturgical calendar. Now, why is that important? It's important because this month, the seventh month, is the most important month in the Hebrew calendar. All right, and it's the month where, actually, can you pull this up here? Let me show our people. I got a little something here we had made, our design folks made. The inner circle is our months. You can see January, February, March. You can see all of that on the inner circle, okay? The outer circle is the Hebrew calendar, all right? This is, this is, it's the lunar calendar, and this is how, this is their, quote-unquote, we would say, months, okay? And on the very outside, you see the seven Hebrew festivals, okay? That's their liturgical calendar that shaped them as a people, much like we have Christmas and Thanksgiving and the 4th of July and New Year's Eve. Well, the Hebrew people had their own festivals that the Lord told them to do, and that's on the outside there, okay? So when it says the seventh month, this is in reference to the month of Tishri down on the bottom. It's the most important month of the year, and usually takes place during our months of September and October. 
Now, Tishri, like I said, is the most important month of the Hebrew calendar because, if you can see, it contains three out of the seven festivals that the Lord had prescribed for his people to remember who he was and what he had done to rescue them out of Egyptian slavery and make them his people. Now, this is a little complicated, but I think it's helpful to know what these were and why they did them. See, most of us, we read our Bible, and then when it says something like Feast of Booths, whatever, we just skim past it. And we don't know what it means. We don't think it's very important. We never really study it to figure it out. And then when we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus going up to the feast and going up to this, we, we, it doesn't mean anything to us, right? So I want to take a little bit of time to teach us at least what these three festivals are all about so we can understand what's going on in the text, in our text in Ezra. The three festivals that took pl- place in the seventh month are called the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, many of us have probably heard of that one, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. It's called both, both things. Tabernacles literally means tent, and booth is like a tent you would make. Now, they're all celebrated in the month of Tishri down here. It's interesting. The Feast of Trumpets marked the beginning of all of these festivals and the beginning of the month and the beginning of 10 days of concentrate, consecration and repentance before God. Its name comes from Leviticus 23, 24 and Numbers 29, 1 through 6. And it literally means to blow trumpets. So this festival began with, bah, 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 right? I almost went in to the Star Wars theme track. That's what it sounded like when I was in my head right there. But, right? I don't know what it sounded like, but they blew the trumpets. That's how it began. Now, now, listen, as we have a festival on New Year's Eve and we blow our kazoos or do whatever we do and the ball drops, this was also the beginning of their liturgical year. Okay, so it began with the blowing of trumpets. Now, it's also called Rosh Hashanah and it means head of the year because it marks the beginning of the Jewish civil calendar. During this celebration, everybody, everybody got it off. There was no type, of, no type of work to be performed, but burnt offerings and sin offerings were to be brought before the Lord. Now, the Feast of Trumpets was important for several reasons. One, it commemorated the end of the agricultural and festival year. So you finish up your harvest, right? That's how they marked the end of the year. You finish up your harvest, and then you begin with the, the Feast of Trumpets trumpets. Also, the day of atonement fell on the 10th day of that month. So you blow the trumpets, you celebrate that for 10 days, then you have the feast of trumpets, and then five days later is the feast of booths. The blowing of the trumpets on the first day of the month heralded a solemn time of preparation for the day of atonement. This 10-day preparation time was called the 10 days of repentance or the 10 days of awe. The trumpet sound was an alarm of sorts, and it, it, was, it could be understood as a call to introspection and repentance. A call, call to think about yourself. Where are you at in relation to God? And then, of course, we know the Day of Atonement, which is described for us in Leviticus 23, 27 through 28, is also called Yom Kippur. And it was the most important day of all the Israelite feasts and festivals. And it occurred once every year on the 10th day of the month of Tishri. On that day, one man, the high priest, had to perform all kinds of elaborate rituals. He had to wear certain clothes. He had to wash himself certain ways. He had to prepare offerings a certain way. And he could, one day a year, he could enter in to the heartbeat of the universe, to the holy of holies, enter into God's presence and make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. This was described in Leviticus 16, 1 through 34. It was the atonement ritual. What this high priest could do to make the people right with God, to turn away the wrath of God, to cover the sins of Israel, God's people. Began with Aaron and then with subsequent high priests of Israel. And the goal was to get them, the priest, the high priest, into the Holy of Holy. Now, what is the Holy of Holies? It's interesting. In terms of sci-fi, let's just talk sci-fi here. 
The Holy of Holies was a portal to another world. The Holy of Holies was a place where heaven could actually come down and God could physically dwell in this one place. The problem with that is God is holy, which means completely other than creation. He's of a different substance, of a different intensity, of a different power, of a different purity. It's like nuclear radiation to the human flesh. And therefore, it required him to be shut into this place, the Holy of Holies, and guarded by an elaborate series of rituals and tents and curtains and walls and sacrifices and altars and incense and lavers and all of these different things, right? Now, the importance of the, Holy of, Hol- of the Holy of Holies was that there was a place on earth where God was in a special way, right? And, and the high priest could go into that special place and make a sacrifice for his people, that he could atone, bring together. The two that have been divided, the two that have been separated, could bring at one, could bring brought together by one sacrifice. Now, the seriousness of this day was underscored by God telling Moses to tell Aaron that he better not come into the most holy place unprepared or at a time other than God prescribed. If he did, he would die. And there's outside biblical sources that say that the high priest, when he went in there, they would tie a rope to his ankle just in case that when he got into the presence of that nuclear power, God, he was not prepared rightly. He didn't do what God had told him to do and he would die. And now nobody can go get that guy. Now we have a corpse rotting in the presence of God. And they, so they would drag him out by his leg. Should have listened to God, buddy. Right? Who's next? <laughs> Who's next? All, all of his sons are like, he's the oldest. Right? So, that's what's going on in, this, in the Day of Atonement. Now, by this time in Ezra, there is no temple. It's destroyed. There is no Holy of Holies. There is no place where the nuclear power face of God dwells. There is no place where man can go to be made right with God. Now, more than likely, These Israelite exiles had created some bootleg festivals, right? Some bootleg sacrifices. They they were out in Babylonian captivity and they're like, okay, there is no temple. There is no high priest. We got none. Okay, so we got to still worship God. We still got to keep our cultural identity. We still got to obey God. So more than likely, they were often secretly, you know, maybe offering sacrifices or trying to worship God and remember the Torah and remember the word of God. But they had no, they couldn't worship God the way that he had commanded them. So here we have God's people coming back and they realize they can't celebrate the Day of Atonement because the temple's not built. But what could, what's next? Five days later is this, celebration of booths. And they're like, you know what? I think we can do that. I think we have time to build what we need to build in order to celebrate this feast, the feast of booths. Now the feast of booths or tabernacles was a week-long celebration that occurred after the harvest. God told them to build tents or booths or tabernacles, little tents, to live in for a week to remember how they lived in tents while God led them out of Egypt and how he met their every need. So for a week every year, they were to live in a tent, rest, and worship God in the Feast of Booths. Now, think about the significance of this weekly ritual, this yearly ritual that happened a week long. I know my kids would love it, right? A week-long camp out every year? Yes, let's do this, right? Now, I know, Mike, why are we doing this, Dad? What what is this about? Why every year after the harvest do we camp out and we just rest and relax and worship God? And the fathers would say, because a long time ago, God chose us out of all the peoples of the world. He came down and rescued us with his mighty hand, and he ripped us out of the grip of the most powerful king on earth, Pharaoh, and he led us out of Egypt through the desert. He led us into a desert that had no food, that had no water, that had no houses to live in. 
And the whole time we were in the desert, we slept in tents like this, kids. And you know what happened? God cared for us. There was no water, he gave us water. There was no food, he gave us food. There was no provision, our, our sandals never wore out. The whole time we were in the desert, we slept in tents and God cared for us. God met our needs and we need to remember as we gather this harvest in, we need to remember this is from him. He is faithful. He still meets our needs. That's why we celebrate this after the harvest. God, just like he says in Deuteronomy, has given us the power to get wealth. He's given us the power to produce this harvest. So here we are. This is where we are, we are at in our story. We are a few weeks after they arrived in Jerusalem, just before the Feast of Booths, and God's people have one singular focus. They want to worship God. And they want to celebrate the Feast of Booths that is coming up shortly. So what do they do? Look at your Bibles. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, the first thing we need to see here is... A miracle is taking place right now. The people, 50,000 strong, come together under their God-ordained leaders, and it says the people gather as one man to Jerusalem. They had one singular goal. They were united, and they were ready to get to work, and they agreed on how they were going to begin. And, you know, they all came together, all right, we're going to rebuild. All right, let's do it. All right, where are we going to start? And the priests tell them where they're going to start, and the people are united behind that vision. Now, this is interesting. Where do they begin? Where do they begin to restore the right worship of God? Now, it's interesting. You might say they begin, they begin with the altar. They begin by building the altar. But that's actually not where they start. They start by reading the word of God. They start by going back to the law of Moses, going back to the Torah. Three times in this text, it references the word. It says, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Down in verse 4, it says, as it is written. Again in verse 4, according to the rule. This is an important principle for us to know. The people were only unified because they were all submitted equally to the law of God, to the word of God. If these folks would have been 21st century American Christians, they would have fought for weeks about what they should do and where they should start. Uh, who says we should start with the altar? I don't want... I want to start with the worship. The worship is what's most important about this. We should start by gathering a band and singing. Couldn't we work harder with music in the background? I can focus better when there's music in the background. Let's start with that. I disagree. I think we should start with the, with the temple itself. Let's build the temple itself. Let's start with that. I disagree. I think we should start with the Holy of Holies. I think we should start there. Most American Christians think that worship is a personal preference. It's a style. It's something that each individual gets to choose based on their personal preference. Well, what I feel is best, what I think is right, 50,000 people. Do you know how many options for starting a temple there would be? 50,000 options, probably. See, the first question we ask is, what would I like? What do I want? 
The leaders here in Ezra show us what our first question as Christians should always be. What does the word of God say about this? Does the word of God speak to this? What does God require of us in his holy word? So what they do here, decades later, after it was already written, is they return to the law of Moses. They return to the Old Testament. They return to the divinely inspired written word of God. And they rebuild the altar exactly how he told them to build it the first time. Look at this, verse 3. They set the altar... In its place, which means, what they mean by that is the same exact dimensions, the same exact place that the altar was, the size, the shape, where it was in Jerusalem. They, re- they just went back and rebuild, rebuilt it, rebuilt, rebuilt, <laughs> rebuilt, I'm like, that didn't sound right, rebuilt the altar in its place. <clears throat> now, this is interesting to me. Because we believe in the lie that progress and technological advancement is always a necessary good. No doubt craftsmanship has come along in the decades since this was built the first time. No doubt they had all kind of different design ideas about what they thought was better, what materials they should use. How they, but they don't take any of that into account. They go back to the written word of God and they say, do it exactly like this. And in today's day and age, there are many people that stand up and say, oh, the word of God, yeah, was divinely inspired. It was good for that time, but it needs to be updated for today. It needs to be modernized for today. That's a lie from the devil. The first question we ask is not, what do we like and how do I twist this to say something I wanted to say so I can live my life the way I wanted to live? We go back to the text and we say, what did God say about it? That's what I'm going to do. That's how we're going to worship him. Now, this altar here that they build is called the bronze altar. It was the altar that was located outside of the temple, which is interesting. It was in the court of priests. This is not the altar that is inside the Holy of Holies. That's not where they start. This altar, the only way I can describe it, this altar was huge, okay? This altar was huge. This altar was 30 feet across and 30 feet deep and 15 feet high, okay? This structure behind me is about eight feet high and about 16 to 18 feet across, okay? So it was. 15 feet high, it was way taller than this, and it was way bigger than this structure, and it had stairs that led up one side and a ramp that led up the other side. It was a huge, just a structure that would just dominate your eye in the midst of all of this rubble and and ruin. Now, the next line in the text comes without explanation, and it's kind of confusing. It says this, They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Now, who are these people? These people are the people who inhabited the city after they were carried off to Babylonian exile. Most scholars believe that these people were eventually the the Samaritans. They were kind of half Jewish and half uh, bred with the pagan culture around them. Now, these folks are not happy that the Jews are back in town. So we see here the setting being laid for a lot of future conflict. Now, just think about this. God tells his people to go back to rebuild the temple, but the people of the land don't want them there and they want to stop them. Can you imagine? For a long time, they've been living how they want to live. They've settled amongst the the ruins. They're worshiping their gods however they want to worship him. And now all of a sudden, a caravan of 50,000 people come back into their town. More than likely, they are now minorities. They're, They're in the minority. And all of a sudden, this group of people comes and they, what's the first thing they do is build a giant altar. 
This is really important for us to see and learn. If the people would have been confused on their mission, they would not have known how to respond to this. If they would have thought our primary mission is to convert people, is to save people, is to be good neighbors, that's mission number one, then they would have never risked offending them like they're about to do. They're about to build a giant, nasty structure. Too many Christians today get tripped up by this because they put the mission of saving souls and not offending unbelievers ahead of our true first mission, and that is the right worship of God. That's our first mission. John Piper famously said that missions exists because worship doesn't. If everyone worships God, you don't need mission. And in the new heavens and new earth, we won't need mission because everyone will be worshiping God. And the same is true for us right now. Missions is not primary. Worship, the right worship of God is primary. So what do we learn from this? When God wants to save a city, when he wants to bring renewal to a city, do you see how he begins? He does not show up in the way the people want him to. He puts a big old bloody altar right in the middle for all to see. Do you know how disgusting and revolting that would be? All day long, the priests would bring bulls and goats and other animals up that ramp, exalted 15 feet above the city, and slaughter them there. The blood would be running down the sides, pooling on the ground. No doubt the priest would be covered in blood. When I go to Africa with Joshua, and I've, they've given me goats in the past, and so I've got all these goats over there. When I go to certain villages, they bring out one of my goats, and they literally cut its throat in front of me, and they butcher it, and, they, and we eat it later that day. And when they do that, it is not pleasant for me to watch. I love eating animals. I don't love watching them get their throat cut. I don't like to see a man, and he, you know, they're, they wear kind of British clothes, so that he was, he's in a suit, and he cuts the throat, and blood splatters all the way up his arm on that suit. And all day long, I'm looking at this bloody arm dude, and it's reminding me exactly where my food came from. Imagine all day long killing bulls and goats. The priests up there doing this bloody work, they would be covered in blood from head to toe. Then the priest would burn the animals as a burnt offering to God. Think about this. All day long, animals screaming, blood spilling out. And that smoke and smell of these offerings would be wafting through the city. I don't think I can overestimate the revulsion most of us would experience if we witnessed these sacrifices, animal after animal, gallon of blood after gallon of blood. We would probably get sick to our stomach and cry out, Why? Whoa! That's enough! I got neighbors over here. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. You are offending me. You are offending my neighbors. What's with all the blood? That spectacle is offensive. But the answer to our question is equally offensive. If we ask God why, God clearly tells us why. He would say, this is what it takes to forgive your many sins. Your problem is sin. Your sin is your problem. The problem with the world is not out there. It's not your circumstances. It wasn't your upbringing. It wasn't your race. It wasn't your gender. Your problem is your sin. 
And the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die because of our sins against a perfect, kind, benevolent, holy God. But God, in the richness of his grace, has given us a solution to our problems of sin and death. He allowed for a time an innocent animal to bear the guilt of our sin and take the punishment that we deserve. And that bull or that goat or that lamb died in our place for our sins. Leviticus 17, 11 and Hebrews 9, 22 reminds us without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sins. Think about this. Here we have, in the middle of the city, on an elevated platform, for all to see and smell the message of the gospel. You are a sinner who deserves to die for your sins, and indeed you will die one day, and unless a sacrifice is made on your behalf, on this altar, all of you will be totally and finally cut off from God. Is it a wonder why their neighbors didn't like them? Is it a wonder why they were building this and the fear of the people were on them? They were building a spectacle to the gospel. A visual display of the gospel. Nothing but the blood of an animal, of a, of a sacrificial animal, of an innocent animal can save you from your sins. Nothing but the blood can save you. It's interesting to me to think the right worship of God here and the different responses that you would get to it. For the believer, this is going on day after day. You're hearing the bleeding of animals. You're seeing the blood. You're smelling the smell. And that smell is going to smell differently for different people. For the believers, that's going to smell like brisket in the oven, baby. So it's going to smell like your kid, what's going on, dad? We deserve to die, but that animal is taking our place because God is gracious and he's taking our sin and he's putting it on the animal and he's killing that animal and he's making us white as snow. He's forgiving our trespasses. He's forgiving our sins. He's reconciling us to a holy God. That's the atonement. Doesn't it smell good, son? But for the unbeliever, Get that disgusting spectacle out of our city. Why? That thing is telling everyone, everyone needs to be reconciled. Everyone is a sinner who needs the atonement through blood. And therefore, it is offensive. It's interesting, Paul picks up this motif in the New Testament. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, listen, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now listen, we are spreading the fragrance of God to two people, two types of people. There are only two types of people on the earth. Those who are being saved by God and those who are cut off from God. And listen, we smell differently to both of those groups of people. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, 
we speak in Christ. It's a spectacle of death to those who won't admit they need it. And it's a spectacle of life and grace and mercy and kindness to those who know they need it. So the people could not be worried about what their neighbors would think of them. They had to be first and foremost concerned with the right worship of God. So they built this altar and they started making sacrifices and these sacrifices testified to the reality and the magnitude of their sinfulness but also to the astounding grace of God. And if you don't understand this, you will not understand Jesus or the gospel. Guys, there are many folks today who start with the question, I don't want to offend my neighbor, so what should I do to reach them for Jesus? Instead of, what has God required of me in the word of God? There are things in the word of God that are white and black and therefore are offensive. Are offensive. And they need to offend us because that's going to provoke us to see the reality of our sin and the reality that we need God to forgive us. And if we hide behind nuance, if we hide behind, well, does it really say that? If we hide behind willing to say the truth, our children are watching. And it looks a whole lot like compromise when you make everything gray. They think they're growing up in a gray world. This world is not gray. It's as radical and as serious as heaven and hell. There is no gray. First thing we ask is what has God said in his word? Now, if you don't get this spectacle back here, then you won't understand who Jesus is and you won't understand the gospel itself. When Jesus, the son of God, shows up on the scene several hundred years later and John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying, Jesus is the next sacrifice. That Jesus is the substitute. Jesus is the one who's going to be lifted up on the cross, just like the sacrifice was lifted up off the ground here. And he's going to pay the price for the sins of the world. He is the final sacrificial substitute who will take the punishment for your sins upon himself and make you right with God. Hebrews says in chapter 9, But when Christ, the Messiah, appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, talking about his body, the new temple. He entered once and for all into the holy places. Jesus goes into the heart of the universe. Jesus goes into that radioactive place. And he goes in there with your sins on him. So he knows exactly what's going to take place when he gets in there. He's going to be destroyed. He entered once for all into the holy places. But listen to this. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. See, his blood spoke a better word than the, than the blood of goats and animals because his was the sinless blood of God. He didn't deserve death. He deserved exaltation. Now, what does it say he does? By his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, and he will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What happened? Jesus took our sin into the radioactive presence of God. And he paid the final price for it, the final sacrifice. And his sinless blood got up from the grave and purchased for us an eternal redemption. These people had to sacrifice over and over, day after day. We don't. 
But it's not because we don't need a sacrifice. It's not because we're right with God and God's just chill with us now. No, it's because Jesus Christ has been the final sacrifice. This was a bloody, stomach-turning spectacle. And so was the cross. It's the center of our religion. The center of our religion is offensive to human beings. No one would look at Jesus on the cross and feel warm fuzzies for him. They would be broken. They would be grieved. They'd be revulsed. Same is true for us today. This is the message of Christianity. We are all sinners. We have all turned away from God and done what we, have sh- we should not have done. And we failed to do what we're be- we've been commanded to do. We have loved things more than God himself. We've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. God calls that idolatry. We've cherished our reputation more than God's. We've been cowards around our neighbors because we're afraid they might think we're one of those crazy Christians. I'm not one of those crazy Christians. I'm a cool Christian. I'm cool. We have a bloody cross at the center of our religion. That's not cool. We've disobeyed our parents. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've fornicated and gossiped about others. We've rebelled against godly authority. We've tried to define our own identity instead of receiving our identity from God and being who he says we are. But because of Jesus, our sin does not have to define us. We can turn from our sin in repentance and turn to Jesus and he will forgive us all of our sins and make us white as snow. But here's the deal. You have got to admit that you are a sinner and you need grace. Paul again, pulling no punches. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous, the word unrighteous just means those who aren't perfect. The righteous are perfect. The unrighteous, not perfect. Listen. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. There's many preachers out there trying to deceive people. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. This is the best news in the universe from Paul. First century Paul. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Do you hear the good news in that? Are you willing to let go of your sin so that God can say of you, like he could the Corinthians, such were some of you? You've got to bring your sin to him. You've got to let him put it on the cross. You have to admit that you're a sinner and let him take it to the cross for you. And there he can pay pay for it. He can forgive you and he can wash you, justify, cleanse you. And now, past tense, your sin no longer defines you. But you don't get to go, this is who I am. I think God will just forgive me. 
because God's gracious. One day you'll take that, pri- that proud attitude and you'll try to swagger into the radioactive presence of God and you'll see how foolish you were. Will you let him wash you, sanctify you, justify you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God? Here's the deal. Only the righteous can go into the presence of God. There was only one who was righteous, and that's Jesus. But if you're willing to put your sin on him, he'll put his righteousness on you, and he'll bring you into the presence of God, protected. He's like a radioactive suit that comes around us and brings us into the presence of God where we don't belong, and we can just go, whoa. And one day, he'll give us new bodies that can handle that radioactivity in the new heavens and the new earth. Here's the good news. If you're willing to repent of your sin, he's already done it. This is why our gathering is shaped the way that we, it's got, we, we do. That's why we confess our sins and why we hear the absolution and why we profess our faith and why we have the Lord's Supper and we hear and respond to God's word. This service is a covenant renewal service that we walk away from God, we disobey God, and he's given us this means of grace to come back and be reminded of who we are, be reminded of what he's done, be reminded that the, the center message of Christianity is the offensive gospel itself, nothing else. And we get to the Christians this morning. So if you're not a Christian, we say, take Christ by faith. Believe in Jesus Christ and he's absorbed the wrath of God for you. But if you are a Christian, you have been baptized, you'd get to take him in your hands, the body and the blood of Christ. And we get to, what does Paul say? Paul says, this meal proclaims the Lord's death. Well, what does that mean? That means he died the death that we deserve. The wrath of God should destroy us. It should obliterate us. But guess what? It destroyed Jesus, so it won't destroy us anymore. I've, been, I've received the righteousness of Christ, so his death proclaims the gospel to us. We eat the reality of that this morning. We eat that spectacle this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Oh, you did it in a way that we find detestable, defends our flesh. You did it for us. And it shows us the reality. Our sins are not just mistakes and foibles, cosmic rebellion, cosmic treason against a holy God that deserves the death penalty. And yet you sent your son and Jesus You, the perfect son of God, took that punishment for us in our place. And you offer us now freely forgiveness, grace, mercy, kindness. We joyfully accept it. We give you our life as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto you. This is our reasonable service. And we want all of the thoughts of our mind to come in line with the thoughts of your word. Would you help us? Would you renew our mind? and renew the right worship in our hearts this morning. Even as we open our hands to receive your body and open our mouths to take the cup of the the new covenant, to to drink your blood, to proclaim your death until you return. Pray this would be an act of worship this morning that you would accept. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.